This is Event Masters. Behind the scenes stories, experiences, and lessons shared by the world's leading event experts. Hosted by Christian Napier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Event Masters, a behind the scenes look at the organization of the world's most iconic events. And today we have one of the world's most iconic guests with us, Ursula Romero. Uh, it's an honor. It's a real honor to have you join us today, Ursula. Uh, thank you for joining. And, and why don't you just tell us where you're joining us from and what you're currently doing? Hello, Christian. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's a same here. It's a, it's an it's an honor. Um, uh, we are, or I am joining. I am currently uh, in a small town called Muño Pedro, which is about a uh, hundred kilometers outside of Madrid. Um, and I've come to spend the weekend with my mom. So <laughs> that's where that's where I'm joining from in Spain. Wow. Well. Thank you for carving out time from your weekend with mom to have a conversation with me. I mean, I'm really, really grateful. <laughs> Just so your guests or our guests, uh, the viewers and the listeners in the podcast, uh, learn know, know a little bit more about you. So you are a producer, a director. You've won awards. You've been in Cannes. You are now the also the co-owner and the managing director of ISB Company, which does uh, uh, host broadcasting and rights distribution for major international sport events. And according to your bio, uh, most recently you produced the uh, live TV broadcast for the Invictus Games in Dusseldorf, Germany. And you've also received international awards for your film, Alan, and the documentary Blindfold. One thing I really want to ask you about is you studied uh, film and you earned a BA in film studies from the University of Utah, which is my hometown. <laughs> I'm joining from Sandy, Utah, and my wife and I are both uh, University, of, uh, University of Utah alums. And you have a, an MA, a Master of, uh, of Arts on Filmmaking by the London Film Academy. And then I have to look here at my list because you speak so many different languages. Uh, English, Spanish, German, French, Italian, Portuguese. What did I do? English, French, German, French, Italian, Portuguese. That's six that you're fluent in. And you can also converse in Russian, Chinese, and Greek. This is amazing. Uh, what, a, what an incredible background, Ursula. Like I said, man, this is a, a huge honor for us to have you on here. And what I want to do is ask you how you got started in this whole thing, you know, how you got started in this business, how you how you decided that you wanted to have a career in film and in broadcast. Well, um, it's actually quite simple. Um, I mean, like like many other young girls, I wanted to be a veterinarian, um, but I was not very good in math. So my dad, who kind of dragged us around the world uh, doing television, um, you know, one of one day said to me, do you want to work at, at an event? And he sent me off to Germany to work on the 1993 um, Athletics World Championships um, as a runner or a liaison officer. I can't remember. And I worked for German TV um, and I just loved it. It was it was great. It was, you know, spending the summer with, you know, Carl Lewis, uh, et cetera, at the time. And on top of that, I can make some extra money. Uh, so I just, I said, I know I want to do this more. 
And then I think the next one was 1994, the World Cup uh, in, in Dallas, where I worked for German television again as a driver, um, where I got lost a few times in Dallas driving around. Um, and it was just, it was just so much fun that I said, well, I want to do this forever. And then, um, and then my dad, uh, Manolo Romero, uh, opened ISB, uh, in Salt Lake and I started working there. Um, but of course he told me as every good father, uh, you need to have a university degree. So I said, you know, what should I do? And the, the, the closest thing to, TV was film, and I've always loved film, so I started dreaming about Hollywood and LA and maybe going to UCLA, and then, but then I just somehow I thought, I can't do that to my parents and make them spend so much money on big universities, and I thought, University of Utah is right there. So I I signed up for, for the film, uh, for bachelor's at University of Utah, and I got in, and and I was able to work on the Salt Lake Games and go to university at the same time. So there you go. Wow. So uh, your 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 father. Uh, so for the five people who are viewing this who have not heard the name Manolo Romero, uh, really a, a legend in this in this industry uh, who. Uh, you know, very, very sadly, um, left us last year. Uh, but uh, um, he kind of got you started in this family business. Did did he push it, or was it just completely up to you? You know, hey, here's an opportunity. If you want to do it, great. But you know, do your own thing. No, he didn't. He didn't push me at all. I think he probably would have preferred me to be, you know, an engineer or a doctor or something else. Um, but I just kind of, it just kind of fell into it and. And I just really enjoyed it. I loved being at the event. I loved being around the people. I loved, I loved the whole, you know, the athletes being there. And, and at the same time, it is kind of telling a story. So, you know, whether you do it in film or whether you do it live, it's actually much more exciting to do it live. And, and as you know, you know, being at an event and being at an Olympics, is just, it's super thrilling and, and super, you know, just, having the whole world come together and meeting all these people from everywhere. And I just, I just loved it. So, so I, I did dabble a little bit in film, but at the end I always ended up coming back because it was just so cool to be able to live different places, meet new, you know, people from all over the world, you know, and it was just, it was just a natural sort of progression. Um, I tried to get away sometimes, which I, when I went to London, um, after Salt Lake, I actually, moved to Athens for for the Olympics there um and it was really great but then I said okay I'm going to try and and do a master's degree in film and I did spend a year after the after I did my master's uh trying to find my way in the film world but I just I got reeled back in and we did um we did the Pan American Games in Rio so it was like living in London or going to Rio, you know, so it was just kind of a, a no-brainer, which is where I met Michelle for the first time. I know you did a, a podcast with her. And just meeting people like that, you know, you just had such a privilege and it's just a huge family, you know, you go from one Olympics to the other and you meet amazing people like Trisha, like Derek, like, you know, Christy, Nikolai, I mean, all these people that you've, you've already interviewed. Um, so it was just a it was just an amazing experience and and I think I just had it you know my first olympics as 
experience that I remember is 1984 in LA, um, where I still, I was a spectator and I remember going to see Mary Lou Retton, you know, in, in gymnastics and we had accreditation. We were able, my mom and I were able to go everywhere and it was just, it was amazing. You know, Barcelona 1992, I think was the last Olympics that I actually went as a spectator and, and just to be there, it was just so cool. You know, the dream team being able to meet all these people. And, and so I just, I don't know, I just kind of got hooked, I guess. Um, and, uh, and still to this day, I'm still, still hooked. I mean, I, I just came back two days ago from China. I was working on a, on a cycling event. Um, so it's just the event world is, is fascinating. It is fascinating. And when you, when you're telling me about your experiences, you know, I get the sense that uh, you you are really, really fascinated by the stories of people, whether they're the athletes or, or others, uh, which has attracted you to this and also to the film and the documentary side. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, what maybe you can give us a little bit more detail about some of the key stories or experiences that really helped shape you. You mentioned that you got started uh, actually on the work side of things in 1993 uh, in Germany. Uh, why don't you unpack that experience a little bit for us? Let us know what that was like just coming in uh, as a runner uh, in your in your first real professional work experience doing a major event. Uh, well, I mean, like I said, I think I kind of always, I didn't really have to learn much because, you know, through osmosis and through moving around, because we, my parents and I basically moved around with the Olympics, uh, for quite a while. Um, I'm actually, I think technically I am an Olympic baby because I think I was made in 1976 in Montreal. <laughs> so my mom tells me. Um, so I think I just had it inside, but, uh, but I just, um, I just remember the whole feeling of getting there. I was the young one. Um, and it was just so cool because the other runners kind of took me under their wing. Um, and, and I, I am by nature a shy person, I think. So it just, it was just really nice to feel like you're part of a family, you know, and, and everybody is in the same boat and, you know, being able to be in the stadium and get the feeling of all these i mean at the end of the day of a liaison officer i was doing i was taking care of all the commentators and running up and down the stairs in the stadium that was packed and back then you had all the commentators were there and it was just so cool to be able to have you know to have on one side a german commentator and the next to it it was the South American commentator and then the Russians and the, you know, they were all there together and it was just this multi, multi multitude of different countries. I think that's what mostly attracted me to it, that you were able to have under one roof, the entire world and everybody was there for the same and everybody, nobody looked at you, where you from, what you spoke, what accent you have, or you don't, you know, everybody's there for the same thing and everybody is admiring these, these incredible athletes. And to be able to put that onto into images, um, I just thought it was fascinating. So, um, also it was my first time away from home alone. So I was, I could be, and I was part of the adult world. So that was also 
very cool. Um, I got into trouble a couple of times just because I forgot that I was 16 and I hung out with a 20-something-year-old. So I, I, I got into trouble for staying out too late one time. But um, but it was but it was a lot of fun and um, and I think that's when I just realized you know this this event world is something special. It takes somebody special as well to to do it. I don't think not everybody is up for you know sometimes you work eighteen hours a day. Sometimes you're you know but it's so exciting that it doesn't really matter. You know you just want to be part of it. Um, and I think that's just what attracted me to it. Um, and I think. The fact that it was in Germany, um, my mom is German, so my mother tongue is German, and it was just very cool to be able to work for German TV. Um, and they also kind of took me under their wing because I was the young one. Um, and back then, actually, it was quite funny because I, I was a little bit, as a teenager, you know, you kind of have these crazy ideas in your head, but I was kind of embarrassed to to be... Manolo Romero's daughter, because I didn't want people to know that I'm there, and I thought I don't want people to think that I'm I'm treated differently or 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 better. So I was trying to pretend like I'm I'm not. Um, but yeah, it was it was just a, a great experience. Um, and actually, one of the things that kind of pushed me to go further is that they were looking for somebody who spoke good English, um, and. They asked me if I could do some interviews in the mix zone, and that was just amazing. So I got to interview, like I said, I got to interview Carl Lewis, who was my huge, I was a huge fan. And it was just amazing, you know, to be there and to be able to interview all these amazing athletes. So, yeah. Wow. Did, I, I, I can't imagine what that experience would be like as a 16-year-old kid, you know. Uh, being able to interview an athlete like Carl Lewis, I mean, how did you handle that? I, I would have just been fumbling over my words. I, I wouldn't have any idea how to handle myself as a 16-year-old kid. Was. I think the interview probably didn't end up very good because I, I don't know. I'm I'm already ter terrified of cameras. But um, but I I think it went pretty well because I had a German journalist with him with me, so I could I had to translate. But I was just I was overwhelmed. Um, and then again, '94, the following year. Um, at the World Cup in Dallas, that was also amazing because they 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 figured out that my driving skills in Dallas weren't that great. Um, so they sent me out to to become a stringer um, and to to look for you know because of my language and and at the end of the day because of my name I was able to go and go to the different in the IBC I was going around to the different studios. Um, and asking to exchange athletes for interviews to come into the German studio. So so that was also quite quite cool to be able to go and, oh, I'm terrible with names, but what, you know, Pelé, for example, or, you know, all those guys that were sometimes working as commentators for other studios. So I would go and say, hey, can, you know, can, we, can we ask Pelé to come over in the German studio and to do an interview? And so I would be like the you know, the, the young one that they would send out to, to do all those kind of favors. Which, which again, I think is absolutely amazing because you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm camera shy. Uh, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm a little bit introverted, but look at you going out and doing all of this stuff. One of the questions I have for you is, You've had opportunity to work all over, uh, you know, all over the globe uh, doing these things. And 
things work differently in different countries. You know, you mentioned Brazil, you mentioned Germany here in the States. Uh, you were just in China. Uh, things work uh, differently and you have to work with a lot of stakeholders, uh, you know, as a broadcaster uh, to make sure that, you know, you have uh, the right access to the venue, that you've got the camera positions and the proper places and so on and so forth. And they have different cultures and different ways of doing things. And so how have you been, you know, or maybe you can tell us some stories about how you've navigated that, you know, in different in different cultures, in different areas of the world with uh, a variety of stakeholders, because that can be a challenging thing to, to, to figure out how to uh, work effectively in all these different places. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I think you, you need to like to be able to talk to people. And, and I mean, um, I, I, I love, different cultures i think one of the things that i am extremely grateful of having this being grown up like this is that you know we my parents never they always i'm an only child as well so that i think that it helps as well but i change schools so often that you just kind of have to suck it up and go okay i'm either going to make friends or i'm going to sit in the corner and be alone um and i opted for the the first version so i I've never been shy to talk to people or make friends or, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, we're all people um, and everybody has their own way of doing things. But I think you just have to adapt. Um, so, you know, I'm I think one of them, the, there's challenges in every country, obviously, you know, for example, I don't know, Brazil, things are a bit more relaxed there and you have to. You can't go in with a hammer saying, okay, we need to get this done now, but you have to go and have a coffee and talk about life first and then, you know, really make them realize that you're actually a friend. And then you can start demanding camera platforms. Um, when you're in, you know, in, in other countries, you have to have a list and you have to have it ready to go. Otherwise, they don't, you know, if it's not written down, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't serve for anything. Um, when you're in... China, you know, you have to sit in, in, in like in China, for example, the first time I, I got there to, to do the first surveys uh, for 2008 for the Olympics, um, people barely spoke English and, and people barely had seen foreigners anyway. And, and for a woman to come in and tell them what to do, well, that was also kind of a, a new thing, um, especially a, a foreign woman. So I remember having my my Chinese um deputy she was she was great and we would go to these meetings um outside of Beijing to discuss uh the cycling road uh venue which was by the beautiful uh, Great Wall of China but I remember being in a scene like something out of James Bond where we arrived in this big room with a bunch of men sitting around smoking um and we were the only females in the room um, and every time I would try and explain to them that I would like them to put a camera position here or there or remove a pole because it wouldn't, it would block a camera position. They would literally not even look at me, but they would only look at my colleague and she would then have to translate. And then they would tell her and she would translate, but she would, they would never actually look at me, um, until I actually, and Maybe this is not politically correct, but I actually went for dinner um, 
and um, decided to join in the drinking um, and got a little bit too drunk. But the next day they were all smiling at me and shaking my hands and somehow the barrier was broken uh, because I made a few jokes and, and managed to, to not fall over. Um, somehow I had gained their trust and their respect. And, um, and after that, things just went very smoothly. So I think you just have to adapt and kind of feel what the vibe is and, and what people, what people are like and how they work. And then, and then you just have to, I, I think you can never come into the country thinking that you know it all, but on the contrary, you have to listen and you have to adapt and most of all you have to offer your assistance rather than saying I know it better um and I think that's what has been sort of my 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 way of doing things and and so far I think it's been pretty successful well I love this lesson that it, ultimately it comes down to trust and building trust with people and it is all about people because at the end of the day even with all of this incredible technology that you have uh, it all comes down to the relationships. And so I appreciate you uh, sharing that. That being said, uh, you know, it it is very, very complex, uh, this undertaking. Technology is constantly evolving. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, did you face any situations where uh, something broke down? It wasn't working. You know, uh, we we had uh, last week on uh, Frank Sapovitz and he talked about, you know, working the NFL Super Bowl in New Orleans and the power went out for 35 minutes, you know, right after the beginning of the second half. And he walked through how they dealt with that situation. Did you have, and that's one of the, <laughs> one of the unique things I think about this business is, you know, you, you just can't push it back. You can't say, well, folks, can we just postpone the games another four months? Cause we're just not quite ready. I mean, you go when you go, you have these deadlines and you have to meet them. And sometimes everything works perfectly and sometimes it does not. And I'm just curious, you know, in your experience, were there any situations where something didn't work as you were planning you know, and you had to make decisions very rapidly about, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Um, well, I can certainly think of quite a few and and like you said the the big the biggest difference between filmmaking for example and live tv is that in film you can cut and you can go again and say action and go as many times as as the film is available or as the camera rolls um uh, but in live you can just you just have to go and sometimes stuff happens um so I mean, luckily, well, I've, I consider myself lucky that we haven't had too many really bad situations. Um, and generally for big events like the Olympics and so on, we, we know we have a backup for a backup of a backup. Um, but for example, um, a few years ago, I remember we had just, um, we had just got our, purchased a brand new, beautiful little truck. Um, and we were on our way, me and the technical manager were on our way to London just after the Olympics, actually. And we were doing a boxing event, um, at the Excel and we were told that, you know, everything was fine, that the fiber was working perfectly, the power, everything was amazing. Don't worry. We've got everything under control. And as soon as we got there, um, they told us that there was no fiber available, even though they had promised us. So we said, okay, no problem. We have our our little satellite, we had a DSNG on the truck. Um, 
no problem, yeah, that's fine, you can jump onto the satellite, we organized the satellite, everybody was happy, um, and the next morning we started setting up, and we wanted to test the satellite, but of course, nobody had thought that the Excel is right into in the flight path with London City Airport. So we couldn't find a satellite, or we couldn't reach point at a satellite. I mean, we tried everything. Um, and then three hours before the match, the first March st uh, started, my technical manager looked at me and he said, look, we don't, we, we can't get out. We can't get the signal out. So we started calling. Of course, there was no other satellite truck was available. Nothing, n you know, it was all booked out and we were moving the truck around. It was literally like putting a puzzle, um, and it just wouldn't work. And all of a sudden I had the whole entire basketball, um, boxing federation, yelling at me saying what the hell is going on and i just said look I, I i can't do anything you know i can't stick my finger out and point at the satellite because it just doesn't work um and of course the event organizers just kind of threw their hands up in the air and said well there's nothing we can do um and luckily by sheer coincidence there was a friend of a friend of a friend who owned a small dsng company who happened to have a dsng close by and they came up screeching wheels around the corner and we I think the first hour of the session was recorded and then the rest we went out live but it was probably the worst five hours of my life um, and I just wanted to find a hole and jump into it um, but then you just have to gather all your smiles and all your good positive energy and say guys I'm sorry it's nothing we can do it's live television and and we'll try to fix it as much as possible and and in the end we did but, you know, it, it, um, it happens. So. Oh, man. I can't imagine the pressure. Uh, you've got to have some, uh, what I would call a roll with the punches mentality, I think, to, to survive in this game. Because uh, if you don't have that, then it will just overwhelm you. Yeah. And, how is it that you keep these um, experiences in perspective and maintain your sanity when everything is just, you know, uh, falling apart around you? I don't know. I mean, I think um, I, I think I'm just probably quite a calm person or calmer than I think. Um, but in situations like that, I tend to just kind of go, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, there's only so much... You just have to be confident that confident that you've done everything possible in your power, um, and then you need to know. I guess you need to have the right phone number to call. You need to know who to contact, and if you've done all your A, B, C, D, and you've come to the end of the road, then that's it. And there's sometimes you just can't. And then, of course, you have to remind yourself that we're not we're not saving lives. Um, and, um, and there's actually a very funny. A cartoon um that it's or it's like a yeah it's a cartoon it's a like a meme um where you where you have two surgeons and they're in surgery and they're stressing out over a person that they're doing surgery on and they, and one of the doctors looks looks at the other and says don't stress out man it's not live television um so i guess it's the same thing, you know, you have to, you just have to remind yourself that at the end of the day, it's just television and we're not, we're not saving lives. Um, 
but we do have a tendency to over-dramatize sometimes. And, and I think that's why a lot of people end up giving up or, or quitting in this industry because it is quite stressful. Um, and you just have to keep your calm and just say, look, you know, I mean, there's always a solution. My, my dad used to say big problems have big solutions. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, unfortunately, I, I hate to use the, the saying that he used, but, um, and again, apologies for the bad word, but it's, he used to say assumptions are the mother of all fuck ups. So you just have to make sure that you cover all, all your what ifs and buts. And, and if it doesn't work out, then that's it, you know? So. Well, it sounds like to me, like he passed on a lot of, uh, really, really valuable and hard, uh, hard one, uh, knowledge, knowledge to you. And you have kind of taken this over, you know, so it's, we're, we're talking about some of the technical aspects of, of the broadcast, uh, elements with live events. Uh, but you're actually running this business and I'm curious how, you know, I'm curious about the evolution from going from someone who's kind of on the ground doing production to then leading more of the production efforts to actually then running the company. I mean, that's, uh, it requires, uh, certainly domain expertise, but also, um, you know, some different or maybe complementary skill sets. So uh, perhaps you can just share a little bit about how that evolution was for you, you know, going from, you know, the 16 year old runner <laughs> in Germany to, uh, now basically, uh, uh, running this business uh i don't know it's i think it's um like i said before i think it's just kind of you know um i think i'm i'm a pretty good listener and i'm i'm a good learner so i think i just kind of always listened to him and and paid close attention to him you know we're we're a very small family so i just you know we talked a lot and and he you know i he always explained everything to me and, and just by being around him. Um, but obviously I have my own ways. Um, and I think, I think I've been kind of running the company now since 2000, I would say 2016, 2017. And then we had the pandemic in between, which obviously brought everything to a screeching halt. Um, but, um, I don't know. It's it's really difficult. Also, now it's quite difficult than than I think what my dad uh, lived because now the competition is very high. There's so many events. There's so many different ways of broadcasting events. You don't have just broadcasting. You have streaming. You have, you know, anything from tier A level productions to I don't know D level productions, where it's just streaming through a phone. Um, and I think that has become also quite difficult in trying to navigate and trying to understand um, what kind of quality people are expecting or wanting and needing. Um, and at the same time, I mean, the, the, the good thing is that ISB is is a fairly small company. We're, we're 10 people and we're, we grow depending on the event. Um, so, you know, we've last week we... And I, I also, I mean, obviously, in order to grow, um, uh, being a private company, you know, we have to go out and bid a lot, uh, which is the hardest thing, actually, for me, uh, because I actually like being at the event and running around. 
um but but doing the the bidding and and going out and selling i i don't like to use that word but at the end of the day is finding clients um that to me is the most stressful part um but you have to do it and so but the good thing is that we are a very small core team um and we're all we've all known each other for a long time we know how we work with each other and then depending on the size of the event we grow uh, but sometimes it's basically just the 10 of us and, you know, we roll up our sleeves and if we have to pull cables, we pull a cable. If we have to run camera, you know, run camera. Um, I, I I like to direct quite a lot as well. So if I need to direct something, I'll, I'll direct. Um, like a couple of weeks ago, we did the uh, local baseball federation uh, event here in Madrid with five cameras. And we did it basically, again, just the, the 10 of us. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're doing an event with the um, International Modern Pentathlon Union um, in Bali, which is only for streaming, and it's it's a it's a, a small event. But again, it's all of us doing it, so we're all going to travel together with our equipment, and we're going to just have some fun. Um, and then, obviously, you have to deal with events like the Invictus Games where we had we grew we had 230 people from all over the world in Germany uh in 7 days um last year in Birmingham Alabama we had the World Games which were uh close to 350 people um so it you know it it just shrinks and grows depending on the size of the event and and the beauty and also the complication is that you know Again, depending on where you are and which part of the world you are, you have to use different approaches and different methods to to lead the group. Um, and I'm a very hands-on, you know. I I and I'm also I don't believe in micromanagement. I I'm more of a you know I I want to be able to delegate so and give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, which I think helps as well, uh, but I also need to know that I have people that I can trust, and 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 if I need to get angry or mad, then I will do it. But I I, I have a tendency to be, as people say, too good. Um, but I, I that's just the way I am. I don't I'm not a I don't want to be a, a harsh leader or anything like that. I think I'm part of the team, and we're all part of the team. And and if I need to stay up until three in the morning pulling cable, then I will do that. And you know, and if I need to make coffee because people are getting tired and we need to make coffee or sandwiches, and I'm I'm the first one there. So, and that's my my philosophy. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but but that's how how I think I am. And and my dad and uh, is also one of those people that you know he has a reputation of been a very having been tough um but he's also i know he's also the first one who will be the first one there and the last one there and same thing if 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 bricks need to be laid or a platform needs to be built or moved he will be the first one who would have you know rolled up his sleeves and done it so so that's that's i think that's a, a very important philosophy for for this kind of work anyway um and and that's what I'm I'm proud of that that I I think that's that's what I'm good at and and making people feel that we're all part of a team. Well, I want to ask you about that a little bit more. And I, I, you you address it already, I think, in the in in some of your response here. But uh, you mentioned that uh, it's a small team, 
but you've been together a long time. So whatever you're doing is working because people want to stay, right? If you, if you weren't doing it that way, then you would have a lot of turnover and you'd always have to be cycling in new people. But your core team, it sounds to me from what you're saying is it's been together for a long time. Mm -hmm. you know, and and uh, so that's a credit to you, you know, for being able to maintain that. And one of the questions I have for you is how did you, how did you navigate the pandemic? Because like you said, everything just shut down. And I, I know, you know, for, for me, my own personal experience, my contracts were frozen for an extended period of time. Um, it was pretty dicey, you know, financially there for a little while. And, you know, how were you able to actually maintain it? There, there were a lot of people that left this industry when it shut down. You know, how are you able to actually maintain your, your core uh, during such a, a difficult, tricky, uh, uncertain time period? Uh, well, um, well, obviously we all ended up working from home. Um, I think my, my dad and I had a long discussion and we felt that, um, this was going to be overcome. Um, and we, we kind of took a step back. Uh, and the first thing we did was talk to every single one of our employees and said, look, you're welcome to stay. Um, there's obviously the government ended up you know giving out help and and so on but we decided that we were going to offer our employees um a reduced um income so we we reduced everybody's including every i mean everyone um and we asked everyone if they were willing to stay uh for a reduced salary um or if they wanted to quit and then go on to welfare um but luckily or you know Luckily, or I don't know if luckily or not, but everybody decided to stay. Uh, we did have to let go of one person, but that was something because they had just recently joined, and it was in their benefit to to go back um, to go back home. Um, also, what we also did is we also kind of all of us pulled together and just really went through every single bid tender process there was. Um, we we came up with ideas, for example, with um, the Karate Federation, which we have a long-standing relationship with. We came up with some ideas to do some uh, streaming, um, to do some recaps with, uh, you know, some some like this Riverside Zoom, you know, all these different platforms that came up, and we did some sort of uh, live commentary from experts, karate experts from around the world. Um, and we did a few things here and there, um, but we really just did decide to go for it. Um, and we had enough of savings, um, so that we can sustain, um, our employees. Uh, I think they all really appreciated it, obviously at the end of the day. Um, I, I did come kind of down hard this year because we had a lot of events. So we went from not doing much to really going crazy this year um so it was a it's been a really tough year in a good sense um but it's been really tough with with everything else that's happened and it's been kind of full on um so we went from from doing absolutely nothing to all of a sudden being full on and i think you know somehow what comes around goes around you know and and i believe in karma i, I don't i you know 
and I think being good and being kind and being generous at the end of the day does pay off somehow. Um, and like I said, that's my, that's my way of life. And, and I think that's, I think I'm not going to change that, um, for a while, <laughs> at least. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a great way to go. You know, you mentioned that, uh, you had to become creative in this pandemic because, oh, we're all going to be working remotely and uh, we we have uh, commentators who are joining <laughs> events remotely. You know, that wasn't really a thing. Uh, and and I'm curious, you know, how you make that shift. You know, you're figuring this stuff out on the fly. But then looking ahead, as you mentioned, uh, the landscape is is rapidly evolving with all of these different streaming options and you know, on social media and so on and so forth. And so I'm curious to hear your take as well about uh, what the future holds, uh, you know, for, for, for ISB and also for broadcast more broadly, you know, what, you know, what does the future look like? Because things seem to be changing very, very rapidly here in the last few years. Well, I was just actually invited to on a panel discussion uh, a few weeks ago at, at the IBC in Amsterdam, and it was, precisely about that um and it was talking about remote production um uh, whether it's good or not whether it's effective or not whether it's sustainable or not whether it's more effective um and uh we have this chat with our clients uh quite a lot because obviously you know rumors go around about oh remote production and cheap productions and you can do so much and and of course you can but there's always a bunch of buts you know you need to have the right uh, scenario, you need to have the right conditions. Um, and I think, um, even though I shouldn't be saying this probably, but I actually think that television is kind of a thing of the past. And I think that more and more, um, we are maybe not my generation. Um, but I don't think very many people are going to be watching sports on television for very much longer. Um, also, I don't think that you will have many people sitting down and watching a whole football game or an entire athletics world championships, unless you are an athlete yourself or you are a huge fan. Um, so I think, I think all the content, the peripheral content that goes with it um, is becoming more and more interesting. Um, I think people are more and more interested in the back uh, behind the scenes stories, um, in the side stories. And I also think that it needs to be content that is quickly and easily accessible, um, meaning over the phone or iPad or, or, or one of the many devices. Um, so I think, uh, for example, with we we work together with the World Games Association, and and the next World Games are going to be in China in 2025, which I'm actually off on Sunday uh, to have some meetings already to start planning. Um, and our our big, you know, my 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 chat to them is always we need to go, we need to think much more social media. Um, we need to think vertical. We need to think putting stories on they'll go viral especially in in a place like China where they love anything that is on TikTok or 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 any stories like that they you know there's no the, i think the consumption 
and the way we consume is changing drastically. Um, and of course, it's it's amazing to have your big screen TV at home. And I think people still will want to have their big screen TV at home to invite people over so they can watch it in HDR, 4K, 8K, what have you. But I think the general population doesn't really care that much about the actual quality, um, but it's more about the access to the actual sport um, and access to their heroes. Um, and I think that also changes the approach, the production. Um, it, it changes the budgets and budgets are in some occasions are becoming smaller and smaller um, for the big sports like football, basketball, American football, sorry, soccer. Obviously that's not going to change for a while. But for other sports, I think the the, the federations um, and the organizers really have to rethink um, on on how they are presented. And we certainly are, I think, one of the pluses of having a small company like ours is that we can we can easily sit down with our clients and 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 talk to them and listen to them and try and adapt for them and come up with solutions for them. Um, and we're always trying to investigate and, and, and also, you know, test and, and I mean, I don't know. I just, I, when I, every time I go to China, I come back with new ideas because they always have new ideas on how to broadcast stuff and how to, to, and how to stream it, um, in a different way, in a more efficient way, or maybe in a, you know, perhaps in a, in a, in a cheaper way, but at the end of the day, it works. Um. So we just have to open our minds and and maybe come up with new ideas, but we have to be very careful when we use the word remote uh, production because it's not necessarily as easy or simple or cheap um, as it sounds. Um, so I think it's it's a fine balance between what is it that we want to tell, how do we how do we want to tell it, um, and most of all for whom, um, and that way. I think that's also one of the reasons why um, my film background is coming more and more to the surface uh, because content production is becoming more interesting, especially for sports. Um, so now we've also created um, a branch that is going to be focusing more on content production because obviously there's so many beautiful and fascinating stories out there. Um, and I think people are looking for more and more of these kind of inspiring stories um, around the event, not just during the event. I don't know if I went a little, I think I went a little bit. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm soaking it all in because I, I, this, what you're saying really resonates with me because I am fascinated by people's stories. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing here, having conversations with people like you because uh, it, it gives me an opportunity to to hear the stories of amazing people. And uh, these stories are very powerful. I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. I, mm -hmm. but, but when you hear somebody's story, whether it's a famous athlete or it's the person who's running concessions or whatever, uh, it builds empathy and you build human connection. And I think that even though we're all super plugged into our devices, you know, we're all using these things all the time, but a lot of that consumption and a lot of this usage 
is to try to build connection with people, right? So we are we are watching stories, we're consuming content, we're sharing content that's meaningful to us with yep. our tribe. And it's all about connection. And so uh, I think you're coming from a great place because ultimately what you're trying to do with, with your clients uh, is find the ways that they can connect with the people that they serve. And, you know, ultimately it just comes down to that. So I think what you're doing is, is absolutely fascinating. And so I appreciate you coming on and taking an hour of your time to share your experiences no before we wrap it up though. I just wanted, I, I, I wanted to tell you as an example, I was just thinking, cause you said if I had examples, but just now, and um, as I was in China for the cycling tour of Guangxi, which is the last uh, UCI world tour stage, um, we always bring, um, I usually go as a, as a director or assistant director, um, and I bring moto, motorbike teams and um, my favorite uh, helicopter camera operator on the planet, and which the, the commentator we had there actually called Da Vinci, because he, his shots were just stunning. And Guanxi is an area that uh, I just recommend anyone to go because it's so stunningly beautiful. But one of the stages... Um, he managed to, and it went viral uh, on Chinese social media, but he managed to grab a, a, a close-up of four Chinese people that have cli had climbed on one of these mountains. It's a very mountainous area. And they had climbed, and he, he managed to zoom in and get these five people who had climbed up probably 100 meters just to watch the cycling race. And he zoomed in and then zoomed out and then revealed over this beautiful hill, revealed the cyclist. And the social media said, you know, who who thought that in China cycling is not popular? So these people had climbed up all the way this mountain to be able to see it. And the video went viral in China, you know. So, you know, we all assume that nobody watches cycling in China, but obviously they do. And these are the little stories that make it so fascinating, you know. So... Yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. <laughs> okay. What, a, you know, I, I, I'm leaving it open-ended here. Any other stories that you want to share with us, uh, experiences uh, that you've had in any of these wonderful uh, parts of the world that you've been uh, able to serve in? Uh, any other stories that you want to share with us before we wrap it up? Oh, my God. I don't know. There's so many. Um, I mean... I don't know. One one of the one for me. One of the most amazing moments was um, when I was able to work on the opening ceremony in Beijing, and um, I I was able to go to the meetings with the creative director of the opening ceremony, who is for me one of my idols, um, and his name is Zhang Yimou. He's a Chinese film director, um, and I studied him at the University of Utah. Uh, and when I was able to go and, and hang out in his creative meetings, it was just for me, it was like, so one of the days that we were there, it was really late night. And, and I, I finally got the courage to ask his assistants, which, which if I could actually go and say hello to him personally. Um, so that was very cool. Um, I think Barcelona 92 I remember being able to go onto the field of play with all the athletes in the opening ceremony, which was also very amazing. Um, I got to hang out with the, the dream team of the NBA team. Um, I don't know, just there's so many amazing stories. Also Salt Lake for the opening ceremony uh, during rehearsals, um, 
the the guy who was the choreographer, his name was Kenny Ortega, and chatting to him uh, one evening, it turns out that he was uh, dancing with Fred Astaire. Um, and then I found out a few years later that he was choreographing Michael Jackson's last uh, last tour. You know, just things like that where you just don't even you don't even realize it. You know, but then there's so many cool cool moments um, that you just you know. My mom, I remember she was telling me the other day she had a she had lunch one time with with Jane Fonda um, in in Switzerland. <laughs> And then she was on the helicopter with, or on the plane. I think they were flying in '94, uh, going from one venue to the other. They were on a plane together with um, with uh, Placido Domingo, the opera singer. Um, and then I remember she came back and she was all excited because she had had seen Clinton right behind her, you know. And like, <laughs> so just just silly things like that, you know. But that just makes it all, you know. There are moments, there are moments that that you just remember. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a really, there's a lot of stories. I mean, I could, I could go on forever. Um, which I'm sure Michelle had a lot of stories like that as well. She's another amazing person. Um, yeah, she's, yeah. she's fantastic. And, and, uh, I, I, yeah, you can sit around at a bar and you can just tell stories for hours, right? This is kind of what we do in this event space. You you get together and everybody just starts telling stories and it just, before you know it, five hours have passed and everybody's sitting around telling stories, which is one of the things that I love about this, uh, this industry. And I'm, I'm sorry that this form, you know, this podcast form doesn't give us that opportunity unless we did want to record for five yeah. hours, but I mean, probably <laughs> everybody would be exhausted by then. Uh, but this has been absolutely uh, fascinating, and I'm sure you've got many more uh, incredible experiences to come uh, for you and for ISB. If uh, viewers and listeners, if they if they want to learn more about the services ISB provides or the things that, that you do, uh, what's the best way for folks to actually reach out and uh, connect with you? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn um, as Ursula Romero, and uh, we also have a website, uh, which is www.isbtv.es, um, and that's it. You're welcome to reach out. Um, our webpage is not very fancy, but it has a lot, you know, it's basically what we do, who we are, and and our team is always happy to to listen, and um, and if we can help in any way. You know, we we always love to help out, even if it's just, you know, advice or consulting or or a happy hello. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, Ursula, we'll put that contact information in the show notes for the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing an hour of your day with me nope. and with our viewers and listeners. Uh, it's really, really appreciated. And Viewers, listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Ursula, thank you so much. Thank you, Christian. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.